afternoon and welcome to Midday Moms. This is Dorothy Polarski and Tanya and Andrea. Hi. Hi. And uh, we'd like to welcome all of you signing on to Midday Moms today. Some of you have watched all of the sessions. Some of you, this is your first one. We'd like to welcome you. Um, we'd like to tell you a little bit about our ministry, and then we will introduce Tanya and we will introduce uh, Andrea. So Midday Moms is a fruit of the pandemic. Uh, we started hosting these sessions um, in partnership with our ministry, CatholicMomsGroup.com. So CatholicMomsGroup.com, I say it's three words. I'm going to share a short video about our ministry for those of you that um, haven't seen it. Some of you may have seen it and some of you are still signing on. So let's just share the video so you can learn a little bit more about us. So again, if you're ever interested in starting a Catholic Moms Group, we encourage you to Google Catholic Moms Group. We can help you start in-person Catholic moms groups with moms only, moms and tots groups, and we can also help you start virtual meetings if that's something that you're inclined to do. Our ministry video is just a few minutes long. We hope that you enjoy it. I'm just going to hit the Mothers, by our very nature... We are nurturing, loving caregivers. We are social beings, made for friendship and community. We are also spiritual by nature, made by a loving God to know Him and love Him, and to pass this love of our Catholic faith on to our children. But right now, many mothers feel overextended, distracted, and exhausted. Though as Catholics, we have the community of our church, many mothers attending Mass could not name the mom sitting next to them in the pew they share. Community and support among Catholic mothers is desperately needed in this hectic and chaotic culture. Your parish needs you to bring these moms together. Hi, my name is Dorothy Polarski. I'm the founder of Catholic Moms Group. We at Catholic Moms Group are on a mission to revive the vocation of motherhood. We exist to bring together like-minded, faith-filled mothers who crave community and are focused on spiritual growth, Catholic teaching, and fellowship. Can you imagine a thriving, engaged mothers group at your parish? A group of moms in love with their Catholic faith, ready to serve other mothers no matter what stage of motherhood they're at. Can you imagine what a difference that would make at your parish? Starting a mother's group, it's not rocket science, but working with a team who's done it before and who's done it dozens and dozens of times sure does help. The Catholic Moms Group membership site is an online community that offers training, resources, and dozens of tools for parishes to help them start a mother's group quickly and efficiently. We're here to provide you with a clear path to launching a Catholic Moms Group at your parish. 
All of our materials are 100% Catholic. We have clearly laid out meetup plans for both moms groups and toddler groups. We are obedient to the magisterium of the Catholic Church. We have created dozens of tools that are going to save you time and energy. And besides that, we love our Blessed Mother. We constantly turn to her for her intercession. You can make a huge impact in your parish, so join us. We are revolutionizing the way parishes start mothers' groups by providing parishes with a Catholic mothers' group starter kit and by nourishing and training a community of Catholic mothers' group leaders across the world. It's time to start a mothers' group at your parish. Join us today. Okay, so another big, big warm welcome to all of you that are um, signing on. And for those of you maybe that are watching on YouTube at a future date. Um, so we're here today to discuss, a, you know, a sensitive topic. It's also sometimes a, you know, it's a bit of a charged topic today. And we're hoping today to discuss the topic of daycare with some calm, maybe from a Catholic perspective, um, finding out how did we get to where we are, and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. I very often find myself these days the oldest person in a room of moms. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think each of us is going to be bringing a little bit of a different perspective. What I would like to do is to begin with a prayer to um, Our Lady of Undoer of Knots, because I know each of us here today, um, you know, we come with our own set of experiences, our own concerns. You know, some of us have children in daycare and love it. Some of us have children in daycare and don't love it. Some of us are stay-at-home moms. Some of us are discerning whether or not we should put our children into daycare. So there's a there's a whole spectrum, right? And um, I always say too that you know we all could use a little bit more money to do what we want to do. And I always say, don't forget all the miracles associated with the infant of frog. Um, so anyway, a prayer to Our Lady, undoer of knots. Mary, undoer of knots, pray for me, Virgin Mary, mother of fair love, mother who never refuses to come to the aid of a child in need, mother whose hands never cease to serve your beloved children, because they are moved by the divine love and immense mercy that exist in your heart. Cast your compassionate eyes upon me and see the snarl of knots that exist in my life. You know very well how desperate I am, my pain, and how I am bound by these knots. Mary, mother, to whom God entrusted the undoing of the knots in the lives of his children, I entrust into your hands the ribbon of my life. No one, not even the evil one himself, can take it away from your precious care. In your hands, there is no knot that cannot be undone. Powerful mother, by your grace and intercessory prayer with your son and my liberator, Jesus, take into your hands this knot. And so think of your intention. 
I beg you to undo it for the glory of God once and for all. You are my hope. Oh, my lady, you are the only consolation God gives me, the fortification of my feeble strength, the enrichment of my destitution, and with Christ, the freedom from my chains. Hear my plea. Keep me, guide me, protect me, O oh, safe refuge. And so with that, I would like to introduce um, our two very remarkable guests today. Uh, I, I have to say I was a little bit afraid and intimidated by these uh, these heavy hitters. Um, so let me introduce to you uh, Andrea Mrozek or Mrozek. Uh, Andrea is a senior fellow with Cardis Family. Andrea's career has spanned journalism and think tanks in Europe and Canada. Immediately prior to joining Cardis, she was the executive director of the Institute of Marriage and Family Canada, where she wrote and spoke about marriage, childcare, and women's issue. She is the author of a number of influential pieces. I'm not going to list them all because you got the invitation with all of her credentials and a way to reach Andrea. So I would encourage if after this um, webinar, you'd like to reach her, you've got Cardis there to in, to uh, reach her. I also would like to introduce uh, Tanya Granick-Allen. Um, Tanya is a Canadian commentator, a social advocate, politician, and a mother of five. She is the host of Counterpoint, a cable broadcast daily news commentary on the program, the News Forum, a national news network in Canada. And, uh, you know, Tanya has always, you know, spoken the truth boldly in love. And she's also spoken at our Dynamic Women of Faith Conference. We're thrilled that she's here. And so again, uh, welcome to all of you that are signing on. And if you'd like to, you know, post any questions in the chat or let us know that you're here in the chat, you're, you know, we encourage you to do so. That's why we're here. And so, uh, you know, motherhood and childcare has changed so much in the last 60 years and uh, you know, I don't know how we got to where we are, but things are definitely um, different. Um, you know, Andrea, how did we arrive at a, you know, national daycare and what factors led to this? Yeah, that could totally take the entire hour, hour of time. Um, but we can do a little summary and discuss uh, an early, I think in the 70s, a status of women committee um, putting forward their first um, recommendation towards something like national daycare. Um, national daycare did arrive for your mom's listening in, I think it was the 2021 federal budget and about $30 billion were allocated for one particular form of care. So at CARDIS, this is how we consider childcare. We think childcare is the care of a child, no matter who does it. And that is a very broad definition of childcare. And I think one that respects the choices of moms in differing positions and um, allows for the highest degree of government neutrality on the issue. Um, unfortunately, we don't have policymakers who share that definition. And so since the 70s, when um, the first recommendation was made, 
you had a whole cottage industry spring up of activists and ideologues and um, childcare researchers and some PhDs tossed in, all of them pulling together to create a body of research, pushing, pushing, pushing for um, the professionalization of childcare in a sense, and the idea of what we might call a, a European style approach to um, to care. So money for centers and something of a more standardized approach at a federal level. Um, the last thing I'll say before you can move on to another question is that um, the $30 billion in the budget is new, but money for childcare is very not new. We have had many, many decades of a lot of money pouring into childcare, which some people might think is that even true because part of the impetus for this childcare system was to say there wasn't a system and we don't have enough money going to it. Um, that money wasn't categorized as a system. So ideologues who demand the system um, didn't really count it. But uh, please know that we have had, uh, I think Helen Ward at Kids First, Kids First Parenting Association chronicled the number and there's something like a 752% increase in childcare funding over the past decades. Um, and that's money that doesn't go to parents or families. It goes into uh, spaces and systems. So that's a little bit of how we got where we are. Um, I still think we can get out of it, uh, although it is getting increasingly difficult to do so. Uh, Tanya, do you have any thoughts on how we got to where we are? Well, uh, you know, obviously, with the Industrial Revolution, Andrea, I mean, you've, you've spoken very well. Just to chime in, I think with the Industrial Revolution, there's a lot of women left home. And, uh, you know, the concept of factory started. We had World War II where a lot of women had to fill jobs because men were overseas fighting. And women started working more in the workforce outside of the home because, you know, people say, oh, well, women, they didn't work before that. No, they did. I mean, women were working their fields and their their homesteads, uh, you know, think of the early Ukrainian immigrants who came to Canada. Uh, they had to clear land and plant fields and build a homestead all usually within one or two years. I mean, those women were working and raising children. It was very complex, but they were always around. They were always with their children. Now we seem to have a lot of moms leaving the home, working outside the home, and then, you know, who's minding the children? So, uh, you know, the, the slow creep, you know, positive or negative, I think it's a little negative, but the slow creep of institutionalizing childcare kind of really came about as, as Andrea was, was pointing out, there was a lot of activism also behind that. And, and I think that's why I'm really glad you're having this discussion, Dorothy, because I think, you know, it's a, it's good to circle back and say, well, what, what works and what, what isn't working? And is this actually helping mothers, especially Catholic women in their vocations as mothers? And, and so, you know, I guess, Two, sort of being the oldest in this little crowd of three, um, you know, I, I kind of grew up during a time where, yes, you know, I always say my dad came, my mom and dad came to Canada with four children, not speaking English, with just a few pennies in their pocket. And well, not a few pennies, I'm sure it was more than a few pennies, but, you know, they kind of put their stake in the ground and um, revolved their life around, you know, St. Stanislav's Parish. And, you know, my mom, yes, she worked at nights cleaning banks um, so that she could be there during the day. And then there were times where she didn't work. And then there were times where she went to the factory to work for a month so we could go to Poland. Um, and and but but primarily the, the climate 
you know, I don't want to age myself, but I'll say back in the day, um, is that, you know, moms really didn't start to work until their first child was in, you know, JK or SK or grade one. And I've I've observed all of these kind of radical changes. Like if you think back to all of the changes over the last 60 years, it's, it's a little bit flabbergasting. Um, so, and again, you know, uh, my heart is to the mother. And so mom's in this day and age, okay, I've got to get up at six in the morning to drop off my child at seven. I've got to go to the club and be a fitness buff. And my house has to look like Martha Stewart's house. And it better be paid off before I'm 40. And I better have a retirement plan. And I, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like exhausting. And um, I just, I couldn't do it, right? I, I couldn't play that narrative once it was kind of demanded on me um, when I had my, you know, first child 28 years ago. Um, and so I guess let's move on to the, you know, the next question um, is, you know, Andrea or Tanya, how does the current public policy help or hinder families in Canada? And what even is the current public policy? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm not going to pretend that I know. So, um, which Andrea, one? why don't you, yeah, Andrea, why don't you, because you have a good handle on, on what's going on politically and what our policies are. You can take it, please. Yeah, yeah. A child care policy specifically. Um, so as I mentioned in the first comment, over years, we've been funding child care spaces more and more. Um, that has flown from um, our federal government through the social transfer. I don't think that's important. But the recent development is, of course, the creation of the national system. Alongside that, we have had something called the Canada Child Benefit. Every mom tuning in knows that they get a check in the mail. Um, that child benefit was a joint nonpartisan, I think, started by Harper, continued by the Liberals, and is quite a successful um, in our mind at Cardis is quite a successful policy um, for giving money to families. We've always advocated, just by the way, for um, money to parents and money for families, understanding that that is what facilitates choices. And then if anybody, you know, puts in the chat that they want to talk about childcare shortages or a lack of spaces, we can do that for sure uh, later on. Um, but, uh, cause that's the whole argument, just as a side note, that's the whole reason why some people say we need the system is because there's a dramatic shortage of spaces. And, um, the only way those spaces will get, get created is if we fund them. Um, we think that's false for a number of, uh, verifiable reasons. So, um, we have a family policy in Canada is not terribly well formed, like in a broader sense. Um, but childcare, uh, essentially is the money for the spaces and, um, a small amount of money in your CCB coming to families, although that is has not traditionally been considered part of childcare policy because you can spend it on whatever you want. But in keeping with our CARDIS definition, childcare is the care of a child, no matter who does it, it definitely can act as um, as support for your childcare needs. So that's a little now, bit of what. So is there really a shortage of? daycare like is there yeah so you know you um actually have entire think tanks doing things reports called child care deserts and then they identify places where there's no child care apparently 
The only way they come to that conclusion is because they define childcare very narrowly as a licensed space in a center. And indeed, right now, the mm -hmm. only type of childcare getting the $10 a day care um, is uh, licensed spots in centers. So, um, or, or licensed daycare for sure. Uh, I think some home daycare may be included. But when we look at the landscape of, um, first of all, we used to do research until they made it hard to get the data on um, centers. And so the results were mixed to say the least. There were spaces available uh, in Toronto and in British Columbia, which is where we studied it. Um, I still think it's possible for someone to say they weren't available to me because the reality of government policy on something as intimate as childcare is, is they can't hit the right notes at the right time. So it may be that, I don't know where most of your moms are tuning in from, but in the GTA, if there's a space available in Scarborough and you live in Mississauga, that's not a space for you. It's not going to work. Um, but those spaces sitting empty are consistently funded, even when they're empty. That's part of the reason why we don't like that policy. We'd rather the money be used and giving it to parents that could take it where they wanted to use it or, you know, take it to family members providing care, take it to neighbor, take it to babysitters. As my, I only have one child who's four. Um, uh, my colleague has three and he said, he's, he said many times publicly, they've used every single form of childcare available. And that's the reality for, I think, parent, parents and mothers in large families is they end up using a lot of different forms of care um, over time. And it includes a lot more than center-based spaces. So that's a little bit on the space debate, I think. Yeah, and yeah, actually, sorry, go on. I was gonna say, um, Andrea, and I appreciate you bringing up the point that you know it's great when the money goes directly to the families because they need to make those decisions. For example, you know, you may be a stay-at-home mom with eight children, and you may would you might like a mother's helper to come in at a couple, for a couple hours in the afternoon while you're trying to get dinner ready or something like that. That is childcare in your home. But when you're not institutionalizing those children, that money doesn't come to you. And so uh, I really feel that for some families, there, there's zero benefit coming. Okay, yes, there's the basic benefit. But when you have a universal system, um, it's like the government is trying to funnel you into a very narrow definition of how you should mind your children rather than let parents make those decisions. And I feel like we're kind of being, that. yeah, it, it's it's... It's challenging. I mean, I've had various things in my own personal experience where, you know, sometimes I would love maybe a little Montessori program or, you know, I'd love my mom to help out, but, you know, gas might cost a little bit or I'd love to give her something. And, you know, you look to countries, for example, like Hungary, where the money kind of follows the child. Like if you want your grandparent to help watch the child, great, here's the money. If you want to stay at home and watch the child, great, here's your money. I mean, that that to me is real choice. And uh, I actually have, I'm very, it's very alarming what's happening in this country. I'm, I know People, as their kids get older, they don't think about childcare anymore because you don't use it. But I think we all have to be very mindful of what's happening because we have to ask yourself, well, how is this next generation being raised? And is that the right way? Yeah, and in, in preparation, you know, for this interview, I, I, I reached out to um, Carrie Gruss. And I don't know if any of you have read her book um, called The Anti-Mary Exposed by Carrie Gruss. Um, this is this is a bit of a game changer. If you haven't read this book, I, I promise you, it, it will. It's riveting, and I would encourage you to read it. And you know, Carrie said to me, like, you know, Dorothy, don't be afraid to, you know, to ask some questions that go beyond 
you know, the standard expected questions when it comes to um, daycare. And, and, and she said, well, you know, what does happen to the mother-child bond when a child is put into daycare? What happens to the mother? What happens to the family? Now, you know, I, I don't want to get into sort of, you know, philosophical debates, but I think it, it would be fair to say that it adds a lot of stress, you know, to a, a, a mom when, you know, she's having to drop off a child at, you know, eight in the morning or seven in the morning. Um, and and I guess too, Andrea, when you say, you know, childcare is childcare um, and, and it doesn't matter who, who gives it, like, I struggle with that a little bit. I'm going to be 100% uh, honest. Um, and I'm not trying to impose, you know, my views on the world or anything. But, but, but like, it seems to me, and I don't know what you think, that, that it's almost like, you know, we, we don't talk about the mother anymore, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so and I think like, um, child care is the care of a child, no matter who does it. That's certainly my, I very firmly got my public policy hat on. And I'm talking about the role of the state. Yes. how they consider what they give preference and priority to. I'm not talking about Andrea Mrozak, mom of a four-and-a-half-year-old. Two different questions. Okay. The best, we, the best we could hope for is for the state to be neutral about how they consider various forms of care. Okay. Except that right now, they're absolutely not. They're reaching into my family home and saying, Andrea Mrozak, because you did not choose center-based care for your daughter, um, you don't get the money we're providing. And that's exactly what happened. I happened to be looking for, I work part-time, have since I returned from mat leave. So I have always sought out some form of non-parental childcare. Although my husband and I did a fair amount of, and still do a fair amount of juggling too. But um, it's just the, the, the money available was not available to us. Um, and I asked around in a broad, a broad group of moms for what kind of care were they using and enjoying and how did it work for them? And I have to say this little anecdote, um, only because it's borne out in the research as well. When I asked about childcare availability, um, and this is very recent, uh, the only person to get back and say they had access to the $10 a day daycare was a practicing physician. I had emailed a broad swath of moms. Some of them were like part-time graphic designers. And it speaks to one of the realities of how the program doesn't work for the average family insofar as it's not a targeted program. It's supposed to be universal. So my friend who is definitely earning in the six figures, um, he was using $10 a day daycare, whereas my graphic designer uh, friend was not. Um, so this is the kind of inequity that I think arises when we attempt or work for these universal programs and, and then find... Um, it actually doesn't work that way. So I mentioned that anecdote because I think it's kind of indicative of what the research shows is absolutely true in provinces like Quebec. Um, I'm happy to have philosophical conversations about mom as a vocation, but childcare as the care of the child, no matter who does it, is a public policy viewpoint. And that's the that's the one I stand by. I think it's important for government to be neutral and they are not right now. And, and uh, again, I'm not familiar with 
public policy. And, you know, I was talking when I was chatting with Carrie yesterday, I'm like, I'm not a fellow. I'm not a PhD. I'm not a commentator. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just Dorothy Polarski. I'm like, ah! so I was, uh, and, and I, and I don't want to offend anyone because I'm, I'm just. No, a- but I think you make a, you made a good point, Dorothy. And I think your point's well taken. Like, I think most mothers struggle, um, now that a lot of work is outside the home, even though there's still the work inside the home and how you you balance that, if you should even be balancing it at all. But I think it's it's hard nowadays because a lot of work is outside the home. So uh, that I think that's a struggle. And I think there's a lot of mom's guilt around that. I think a lot of moms feel guilty when they leave their children. And that is a real struggle. And I think ultimately parents and, and families have to make those choices that work for them. For some parents... Um, you know, maybe they'll forego that extra, they won't, they won't take a latte out of the house anymore and they're going to do things from home and they're not going to have that second car because, you know, having sometimes a second job requires those things. They'll make those sacrifices because that is a priority for them. For some parents, it just, they just can't with just one income because of programs, sorry, Andrea, but because of programs. No, or, I don't, not, I don't um, like I don't. Well, with universal childcare, I mean, yes, it costs a dollar, $10 a day. Will it actually cost a lot more than that to run? So who's paying for that? Our tax dollars are. So now, you know, the stay-at-home mom with, say, eight kids, okay, or four kids, doesn't matter. They're now paying more into tax for something they're not even benefiting from. So yeah. it's, it's it's more of a harm. And uh, and again, these are these are huge topics one wrestles with. I know for me personally, anecdotally, you shared, um, Dorothy, for me, you know, I've always tried to find a way because I was the primary caregiver for my children. And, and that was a conscious choice that we made that when I did all these other things, yet loud, big things or smaller things behind the scenes that I would always make sure that I was around. So maybe there would be more evening, maybe we were early. I found a way that worked because I I made the choice that I did not want to institutionalize my children in a daycare setting. It was just not what I wanted because there's a lot of stuff that comes with that. Your kids get sick. There's a lot of dropping off, running off, getting them up when they're not waking. It's, 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 it's a juggle. Uh, what would have been nice is if the government if they got out of the program altogether and just backed out of the way I mind my kids, or if they're going to get involved like they are now, that at least they give the money directly to families as, as Andrea suggested. Yeah. And I would encourage you that, you know, um, for further reading, I'm not going to say that I read these books from cover to cover, but that would be, cause that would be just a lie. Um, but you know, when I was speaking to Carrie yesterday, she mentioned this book and I said, Oh, I read the first three chapters. Let me go grab it. I, so I haven't finished it, but, um, if you're interested in this topic, um, a a great book is being there. Why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters by Erica Commissar. Then there's also, um, making motherhood work in, you know, in different countries, uh, from, you know, research from different countries. So if you're interested, you know, further uh, in, in this topic, because we could probably talk about it forever. Now, what concrete changes to public policy would help? Because, you know, my daughter, who got married two years ago, um, is stuck in the very sort of dilemma that, you know, that you're describing. I, I know that she'd love to have children, but they need the two incomes. And she's like, mom, like what do you know? And I said, you got to find a way to make it work. Like I'll be praying. But so what policy changes could there be? 
Uh, I can jump in there. I did also want to add in another book for interested people. It's by a really great um, developmental psychologist in Canada, Gordon Newfeld. You may have heard of him. He offers really practical, tangible parenting tips, but also has written a book called Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. So um, as for changes in public policy, one simple change would be to change the definition of childcare, because then again, we would have that neutrality. And um, what a lot of research points to uh, is the idea that families matter even more than your childcare choice. So that's a really good neutral thing to rely on, um, that you as a parent, as a mother, can have inputs into your child's life uh, beyond the, the daycare choice. Um, and again, I mean, extra tax credits for childcare spaces are more equitable than money to spaces. But I mean, our favorite policy is always the money to parents and removal of money to spaces that may sit empty, that are going to balloon in cost and not provide spaces to those who arguably could really need them. The economic impetus is real for many. You've mentioned your daughter and they need two incomes. I mean, on a very practical level, this is not public policy at all, but I wish that I had been more coached as a young woman to prepare for the realities of parenting in such a way that you are budgeting early on to live off of one salary rather than two because it buys you the choice. It buys you the time. But I really understand that that isn't a reality for a lot of people. And if we've heard about the housing crisis once we've heard it a million times. So, I mean, the environment is much different from even what it was pre-COVID for uh, families' finances. I think that um, accounting, if you have to use a daycare space in a center, I don't think parents should be like terrified of the choice, but I think that they need to account for how they use it and read books like Hold On To Your Kids and choose attachment principles and watch the quantity of time that your kid is in care carefully, that kind of thing. Um, there are ways to make that choice work for your family, but um, I think that there's a lot of factors that need to be considered in how you do it. Yeah, and I, I know that uh, um, I just, I followed his work for a little while and I can't remember it all, <laughs> but uh, Jay Belsky had some recommendations on um, the number of hours that were optimum. Um, and, and just putting on my kind of, my Catholic hat, not that I ever take it off. I, I, <laughs> I encourage moms, um, really, I have had remarkable, I've had miracles, um, just many miracles, financial miracles associated with a novena to uh, the infant Prague. And if you would have told me this 20 years ago or 30, I would have been, yeah, 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 just an old crazy <laughs> Polish religious lady talking about novenas. But when I saw thousands and thousands of dollars in my bank account, I promised the infant of Prague uh, and on more than one occasion, one occasion, um, it was an unexpected $35,000. I'm not joking. And, and so I, I would really encourage you, if you've never done a novena to the infant of Prague, he's not going to make no fool of me, right? So I, I can't, I can't promise amounts, okay? But I can promise um, that, that 
that I've experienced, I've experienced many, many miracles. Now, every family has its own unique circumstance. And, you know, I think every mother loves their child, um, of course. But what is, is there any research on what the ideal is when it comes to child care? Like, is there any research or like, what's the ideal situation? Well, you've already mentioned some pretty key names there um, for research on child care and, and what it points to as regards outcome. Jay Belsky is uh, exactly the type of person I'm going to when I talk about quantity of time and care and the influence of family as well, that family is more influential than, um, than choice of care. Um, so, you know, talking about ideals in the public policy realm isn't, isn't my sweet spot. I tend to speak in terms of neutrality of the government policy that would allow parents to make their own choices that work for their family. Um, and the reason I think right now is not neutral is it's creating law as a teacher and policy can be a teacher too. And that's what's happening. So for all the times that I was in the park with uh, just under one-year-old and was asked, when are you using, when is she going to daycare? That already suggests to me that we're not living in a neutral world because I wasn't sending her to daycare. So why wasn't the question, what are your plans, right? Um, mm -hmm. So like a 12 month mat leave, certainly a tremendous gift. I loved it. I used it and I extended it to 18 months when that became available. Um, but it acts as a teacher and it suggests to a lot of women that that's what they do. That's And I'd love for women to have more freedom than that in their choices, to think more freely um, and to not walk alongside saying, okay, law is a teacher, government policy is a teacher. I'm going to do what is quote unquote done in our culture. That's not real freedom for your family. And I think a lot of moms, unfortunately, we've had a, a little bit of the mom guilt conversation come up, but a lot of moms experience that guilt because they're hedged into a course of action that they thought they'd be comfortable with, but it turned out they weren't comfortable with it. And that's what I'm trying to avoid for any young mom, any young person coming up is to max out on their freedom. Uh, and you'll figure out what your ideal is in that context, but you can't if you head yourself in, you can't utilize the freedom that's given to you. And I don't want people to be using government policy as their guiding light. Well, and yeah, that's a very, I'm glad you mentioned that, um, Andrea, because I think a lot of women feel bullied into choices by public policy, by like for in this government program, it's it's like you mentioned, um, you know, when are you putting your child in daycare? It's, it's terrible. I remember people used to mistake me for the nanny with the children at the park. Oh, who do you work for? Like myself? <laughs> These are my kids. Uh, but the fact that that is a normal conversation just really shows you that I, I think that the conversation, it's it, it has to be had. And I, I think you're right. I think women have had their freedoms limited. I think in some cases we're sold a bag of goods that, um, again, in some cases, because there's not a one size fits all. I'm a firm believer that people have to make the decisions that work for their family. Every family is different. Um, but that, hey, just dropping your kid off at a daycare center, you know, if you're in Toronto, that's like a seven to five kind of situation, that that's, that's good. And for, I'd say most children, that isn't good. That isn't great. If you have no other option, I mean, you're doing the best you can. If it comes between starvation and daycare, I mean, you obviously have to pick wisely. But for most women, they want a choice. And that might be, again, having maybe their parent help watch their children. Um, or, or maybe it means that their spouse 
uh, can stay home if if they're allowed that kind of paternity leave or something. But women, I feel we have been bullied into a situation. We've been cornered and public policy is is. In fact, I think it's being anti-woman in this regard. I don't think this is helping us. I think it's we're being told over and over again that the only place for you is out of the home. And if you want to stay in the home, then there's something wrong with you. And I think that any kind of public policy that doesn't validate women's choice is is a shame. Yeah, and I've looked at data. Like, we're talking about what works for your family, and that's really important, and that is ultimately what I believe. But in the aggregate, when you stats, when you look at the statistics on what women want for their working environment, uh, a big chunk in the middle, the majority prefer a uh, part-time arrangement, um, not full-time work. So you have a thin sliver who want full-time work and uh, something of a bigger um, minority who want full-time at home. And then in the rest of everyone is saying the part-time work um, uh, situation would be the best for them, which is precisely why we don't have government policy that reflects women's desires, because the nature of the system we're getting is pushing toward full-time care because it's not going to pay for itself. And the whole point is to increase our GDP and get more um, adults into the workforce full-time. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they talk a good line about it being family policy, but it's not. It's actually economic policy. And that's another thing I think moms in particular need to be aware of, that $10 day daycare, it's not actually for them. It's for the economy. It's for the GDP um, it's for reasons well beyond helping you, for example. Uh, now, Tanya, I have to, uh, I almost chuckled when you said that, you know, moms in the park were mistaking you for the nanny. Well, moms in the park were mistaking me as a grandmother. So <laughs> I was the mother. So you're lucky at least you got mistaken as a nanny. Are you the child's grandmother? I'm like, uh, no, but uh, <laughs> Having uh, having said that, I I also want to tell you a, a little story. And for those of you that uh, have read my you know my my book Motherhood Matters, um, I told that story in the book that when I was single and I was delivering corporate training programs, um, you know, across Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., Canada. And at one point, I was, uh, you know, blessed to be delivering communication seminars in um, Hawaii. So, you know, I loved it. It was my second, third, fourth time or whatever in Hawaii. And uh, I was single, driving around the islands. And uh, I was skinny then, too, and young. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. But anyway, I decided to go to the um, zoo on my own. And... Uh, in front of me, there was a, a, a woman, and I always joked that Gwen looked like St. Francis, right? Except for instead of it being animals, it was children. She had, you know, one on her hip, one on her arm, two in a stroller, a couple others holding the stroller. And I went, you know, I'm the type of person that'll talk to anyone. I say to Gwen, Gwen, I didn't know what her name was. And I said, hello, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm a motivational speaker and I noticed you know that you run your own home daycare and she looked at me and she was so offended she goes home daycare each and one of these children are my own and she said and you're an inspirational speaker she goes I feel sorry for you because you're traveling internationally, delivering seminars to people you're never going to see again. At your age, don't you have a man in your life? And I said, well, I do, but... 
dating um, my husband at the time. She goes, if you had any real courage, you would fly back home, you would marry that guy, and you would start a family. And on your deathbed, you'll see you'll be surrounded by, you know, it was like a, it was like a life changing moment because here I had assumed with my corporate careerism that this was I had never met anyone that had that many kids I didn't even know women like that existed until actually honestly until I met a number of women in Opus Day, which I'm not a, a, a member of but I was like whoa you know you do that uh, and so anyway <clears throat> I, I, I threw that story in because it has a certain amount of levity, but it also sort of demonstrates where my mentality was that really, you know, you only have two children. And um, and and so women have been duped and I was duped. And um, this is why I found this book just I'm like, oh, so that's what happened to me. I couldn't figure out what happened to me. But Carrie Gress's book really, you know, helped me. Now, some people argue that a child thrives by being cared for, you know, by their parents. Others say that it doesn't really matter who cares for the child. Um, is there any research or science that says one way or another, like, what's better? Like, I, I don't know what the research is, but um, any of you care to comment on that? Yeah, sure. Um, also, just reflecting briefly on your story there, like uh, we're we're hitting a point in Canada of extremely low fertility. So stepping back from the childcare discussion a little bit, replacement fertility is 2.1 kids per woman. And then we're at 1.4 after the pandemic. So much lower than that. Um, the good news is that we just pulled on this and I guess half of Canadian women would like to have more kids than they are having by the end of their reproductive lives. Um, so the complexity to all of that and how we arrive at a point of like normalized childlessness is something that deeply interests me as well. Um, and part of me thinks that more moms need to speak to the empowerment that comes from being mothers. And there needs to be a louder voice for women who are mothers and love it because, you know, you're saying you didn't, you know, know how you arrived at the point of, of no kids later in life, what have you, but like, that's a very, very common story. And we have to a certain extent normalized uh, childless existence. And uh, it's a culture that needs to be overturned. And so, and I think part of that is, is, is speaking to the value and the beauty of being a mother, which kind of ties into your question then. So like, what does research show on, uh, I think you were asking, what was it like? What does research show on where kids are are best off? Yeah, that is? Some, yeah, some people say that children can be raised that children thrive being raised by their parents, and other people say it doesn't really matter who raises yeah. them as long as they're being raised. And so, what does the science or research say? Yeah, that's like a huge, huge question. One thing I'd point to though is the attachment question, and every parent, regardless of their child care choice, needs to be thinking about that strong attachment with a. Uh, constant caregiver. And I hate the neutrality of that language. Essentially, you talk about the importance of a constant caregiver and you're like basically, you know, pointing at mom and dad because those are the constant caregivers, right? Um, if my daughter were here, I wouldn't be able to stay because she'd be too noisy, <laughs> <laughs> too uh, demanding. But uh, anyways, yeah. Um, so I think that uh, 
mothers are kind of given short shrift for their value and importance. And the um, the policy reflects that, that you're sort of interchangeable and it doesn't matter. Um, I know of research, in fact, though, like it's a pretty adult-centered world we live in, but there is research showing that mothers in Quebec who use the childcare system there are actually more stressed out, not less, which oh. is an interesting finding because um, part of the bill of goods we're sold is that a national daycare plan really ameliorates your stress and helps you out, and it's a family aid and all of these these good talking points. But um, yeah, I don't think that's borne out in the research either. So um, I guess the fertility comment pertains, the low fertility comment pertains to like, we have a problem and whatever solutions are, are brought up need to address the fact that we aren't really facilitating family life anymore. We're not encouraging it. We don't promote it. And policy hasn't yet seen fit to say like, this is a valuable thing and we would like for women to be able to have the number of kids they say they want, which is currently not the case. So there's a lot going on in the family uh, arena and, and public policy is falling short, frankly, and our governments haven't even very, very few politicians will touch the third rail of low fertility at this point. And, you know, again, I'm going to reference my, my daughter. She's, you know, again, she's 28. And this past summer, she went to Poland with her husband. And, you know, while she was there, she kept on sending me photographs through Messenger. And there are all these young couples with two, three, four, five kids. And they were, they were young couples. And, and she goes, Mom, it's just such a different world here. She goes, well, you know, come back here to Toronto and everyone is pursuing everything else except for having children. And so, you know, very often during uh, the Dynamic Women of Faith Conference, and I'm going to do it now, um, is that, you know, is God calling you to have another child? Um, and if you are being called to have another child, um, listen to that voice, pray with that voice, you know, because so often we're suppressing um, you know, we're living so much out of our heads. And, and so I always say, you know, God has a plan for you. God loves you. Uh, God will provide for you. And uh, yes, we have to use our reason. And yes, we have to, you know, refer to the Excel spreadsheet. But but we do also, as Catholics, believe in the supernatural and the supernatural. Um, Tanya, do you have anything to kind of... <laughs> Well, here's an example of childcare failure. <laughs> the little one snuck in during a Zoom call. Um, I guess one thing I, when you mentioned about um, your daughter being in Poland and what she witnessed, I, I do think that there is a massive cost of living issue here. And that's, this is for another Zoom webinar. Um, but I think it would be beneficial to have somebody come on talk about cost of living and how that actually impacts people's family choices. Because, um, you know, I can imagine being your daughter's shoes. She's probably thinking, well, how am I going to, she lives in the, I assume, the greater Toronto area. How am I going to afford a house? How will I have children in a one-bedroom apartment? Like Those practical things make a difference where, you know, if you go south of the border or sometimes even to another province, you know, Alberta or, or out east, it's a little bit less expensive. But again, there's it's a national problem. The cost of living does definitely inhibit one's choices or at least Play, plays a massive factor into those choices. And I think it's a reason a lot of young people are delaying family. And I don't think that's a good thing because again, it's more restriction on choice, on personal freedom. 
and um, and and again, you know, my answer is always to my daughter, to each and every one of you, you know, just to spend as much time as you can um, in Eucharistic adoration, in prayer, because you know the situation is um, very, very complex. I, I'm also going to recommend um, uh, another book. Uh, and I remember, you know, when I first became a mom, because I was uh, sort of in the training world, I was kind of like, okay, show me <laughs> what it means to be a good mother. Show me how I'm going to pass down the Catholic faith. And so I was really interested in learning from other women. And all of the books that I, I read, they seemed to kind of ring hollow, right? Um, and all of the kind of mothers groups that I went to that existed, you know, at that time, you know, some of them were much too rigorous and demanding and demanded that I kind of be silent. And I'm like, silence is not going to work with Dorothy. And other mothers groups were almost like, um, you know, very secular. And so you'll have a woman, you know, talking about how much she drank last night or how her husband's an idiot. And so in search of different Catholic moms groups, I was kind of and anyone. And so I started my own. But the book that was a, a game changer for me, because I I had a profound experience of our Blessed Mother that changed me forever. Um, and, and and this book I, I recommend to anyone and everyone. It's called The Apostolate of Holy Motherhood. The Apostolate of Holy Motherhood. Whenever we um whenever we, you know, start a Catholic moms group, you know, this is one of the, the books that we recommend. The the other uh book I'd like to recommend, which um I heard this talk by Alice von Hildebrand at a Defending the Faith conference in uh, Steubenville, Ohio. And when I heard her give this talk, the, the privilege of being a woman, um, mm -hmm. the privilege of being, it was riveting. I was like physically listening to her speak and I felt like, a, I, I felt like an electric bolt sort of going through my system. And I thought if women like her and women like, Kimberly Hahn exist uh, in, they've got to exist somewhere else and I'm going to find them in Toronto. And so it's been a real joy. Um, someone's posted a question here. Good afternoon, Dorothy. Sorry. I'm like, oh, no worries. No worries. No worries that you're late. Um, so it's just wonderful, wonderful, fruitful, fruitful um, discussion. Um, okay. So we've mentioned, um, I think I think we've covered it all. Is there anything that I'm kind of missing? Any thoughts? Yeah, my parting my parting thought would be only just a little bit of promotion for Cardis and the work that we do on fertility surveys and asking women what they desire on childcare policy, on family friendly childcare policy. So Cardis.ca or reach out to me personally. We do a lot of work on that in the federal arena. I live in Ottawa here, and so it's a bit of a resource for. For moms across the country, really, um, for families and for parents, as we try to create a bit of a, a family policy framework that actually recognizes the value of parents. Um, so we do, but I feel there's a long way to go in the policy arena. So trying to work on that has made up like pretty much my life's work. <laughs> and is there anything specific, you know, because, you know, maybe moms are 
you know, sitting here watching or watching on YouTube later um, or on Spotify because we upload these episodes to uh, different platforms. Um, is there anything that the kind of average mom can do to move the needle so that, you know, some of this funding does become available to, um, you know, should she be well, reaching out to her MPs or should she be? Yeah, at a very basic level, don't be kowtowed into silence, regardless of whatever your childcare choices are. Because um, a lot of the voices of women who do life uniquely often feel like they don't have something to bring to the table or that it's too daunting. Um, I can't say there's any like bill right now. I do think the next five years are pretty critical for Canada because we do have a really bad um, childcare policy that just came in. And if it's not drastically altered or even altered in a significant minor way, um, like in meaningful ways, then we'll we'll be stuck with it forever. I think there's some hope in that there's a window of opportunity in the next five years for changing it, um, for improving it uh, before it sort of solidifies and entrenches into into bad policy. But there's that's not that's not an easy thing to do. And I'm not sure it's one call to your MP, but to stay on top of the issue, you can certainly, yeah, be in touch with me. Yeah. And if there's anything that you can, you know, if you can give us any direction, um, we're, we're here. So we encourage it. So I know that um, everyone's schedule is tight. I know, you know, Tanya, your schedule is tight. I know, Andrea, I wanted to thank you for your uh, participation today. Um, it's incredibly uh, fruitful conversation. I was really afraid to have it, and and and, and it's, I get so nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh! I wanted to thank you for your participation, and for those of you that joined us today, I encourage you to believe in the supernatural. Right? I often think of my father coming to Canada with four kids, not knowing the language, and putting his stake in the ground, and we made it, you know? And so if God is calling you to a radical, um, some kind of a radical decision through prayer, spiritual direction, discernment, and the intercession of our Blessed Mother, I'm sure you're going to land on your feet. So thank you. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Andrea. And thank you to all of you um, for joining us today. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thanks for having this important talk. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.